Andy Bud, uh, thank you so much for joining me on Outlier Academy as part of our Outlier Founder Series. Um, I'm so excited to have you on. You, know, you have a wonderful background in design, design leadership. And today we're really going to explore why design matters and how design creates great companies and great products. And where I wanted to start, um, because we're going to cover a lot of ground, is if you, know, if you could just talk a little bit about how you discovered design and when it dawned on you that design was what you wanted to do. <laughs> Brilliant. So the sort of the, the superhero origin story if you will so yeah something <laughs> like that or not so superhero <laughs> um so yeah so when i was at school i when all the other kids were sort of running around in the playground kind of playing football and having fun like my school had this kind of like computer this first computer bbc basic bbc micro which i think also was like the routine to many designers engineers kind of games programmers back in the day and so I kind of like from a really early age kind of discovered this thing um but when I was younger I kind of saw it as a toy I was also the first kid in 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 my neighborhood to get a, a personal computer this would have been a spectrum you know a, a 48k spectrum back in the day and you know in the evenings I would and this is showing my age and I still can't believe this is a, a thing that I used to do but you know you would get magazines and you would like hand copy out the kind of the game code for the magazines to kind of make the game run um, and so I kind of found myself doing that and kind of making the screen do lots of kind of interesting things. And so I, I found technology for whatever reason, kind of really fascinating. I went to university and I didn't know what to do. So I studied aeronautical engineering. I wanted to be a pilot. I wanted to travel the world. And weirdly in that time, like actually, even though I did an engineering course, like computers were not being particularly used. I did like a, a session on CAD and that was about it, but it was all very kind of manual and physical kind of wind tunnels and that kind of stuff. After leaving university, I realized I didn't want to be a, a, an airline pilot because, first of all, most of the airline pilots I met were boring. That sounds a horrible thing to say. But, you know, the idea of being stuck in a metal tube for, for 14 hours with somebody that was like sending me to sleep just didn't really attract me. And also, like people talk about how being an airline pilot is 98% kind of boredom and 2% terror. And that's not the kind of the terror boredom ratio that I kind of want. So I, I sort of ditched that, but thought, well, hey, look, I going to go travel the world. And so I traveled around sort of Southeast Asia for about six years. And actually, I learned to dive. I became a dive instructor. I traveled around Asia in the Barrier Reef and taught people to dive. Um, and I would discover the next location by going and using this thing called the internet in, in cyber cafes. And one day I was sat in the cyber cafe in Manado in Indonesia, in the island of Sulawesi. And back then everyone was either using kind of like, you know, gopher or hotmail or you know kind of you know whatever and the guy next to me had a screen and it was all blank black rather and it had all these like weird white angle brackets i was like that's weird that's not hotmail what's going on there and so he got up to leave and i kind of took up the nerve to say hey look you know what are you doing this was kind of like 98 maybe 97 96 somewhere around that and, and he was like oh i'm kind of building a web page was like you can build a web page because you know from a kid like you can't build a tv show you can't build a book you know you can't build a radio program Generally, like back then, you didn't think about that. So I kind of thought, well, hey, look, rather than kind of sending emails to my friends to update and tell them what to do, I'll have a travel website. This was before my friend Peter Mayholtz coined the term blog. Um, uh, so this was like way before that. So I thought, okay, I'll teach myself to code. And then the other moment, I was in a, in a, a hostel in Singapore. And there was this English guy and this French guy. And this French guy turned up all in Lycra. And I was like, where have you just come from? He's like, oh, I just cycled from Paris. This is in Singapore. I'm like, oh, okay. Where are you going tomorrow? I'm going back to Paris. Like he'd literally cycled all the way across the planet for one day in Singapore and then turning around. And then this other guy. 
And I was like, what are you doing? He's like, I'm a web designer. I'm like, oh, what's that? And he's like, well, I, I make websites and I do this thing called HTML. It's really easy. Anyone can do it. And I make a ton of money and I work for six months and I travel for the rest of the year. And I was like, wow, I like the sound of that. So I thought I'm going to go back to the UK and I'm going to learn to do this web design thing. And so sort of 98, 99, I kind of got into web design. I learned how to code. I learned how to build pages. I learned how to use Photoshop and all those kind of things. And I guess one thing sort of led to another. And, you know, you, you eventually find yourself doing it all. I could program. I could use PHP. I could use MySQL. But it wasn't the area that I particularly loved. So I kind of like the thing that I was really into was the, the design side of things. And so that's how I became a designer. It's a wonderful story. You know, I'm, I'm curious because um, design, at least, you know, my kind of experience and understanding of it is, you know, you have to be, I think, wired a certain way to enjoy it. And I think just be good at the sorts of problems you're going to be tackling. And I think, you know, everybody in my experience has a slightly different understanding definition of design. So I guess one of the questions I want to ask is, what do you think it was that for you made it so that design was the area that you were fascinated in? Was it your wiring? Was it the types of problems you were solving? What do you think led to that sense of this is what I want to do? It's a Difficult question, because I, I kind of like both. Like, I did enjoy the programming. Um, I did enjoy the problem solving. I found the kind of the bug bashing quite frustrating. You know, you, you, you know, you spend half an hour putting a thing together, and then you spend two days trying to figure out what you didn't get right. And that could be really, really enlightening when you figure it out. But it can also be really infuriating. But what I liked, I guess, is a sense of flow. You know, everyone kind of is chasing this sense of flow. And whether you're an engineer or whether you're a designer, like, you you can go into work in the morning, you can suddenly realize it's the end of the day and you've been in this kind of beautiful state of flow as you're kind of doing things and making things. But also what you get is you get an immediate sense of satisfaction. So many people in their day-to-day -day lives are part of a much bigger kind of machine and they're a cog in a wheel. And they take a bit of paper or a file and they move it from one part of the business to the other, adding a few bits and pieces, adding you know, you know their stamp and they move it on. And so... Most people never get to really see what they're making. As a designer, as an engineer, you, at the end of every day, you have a sense of accomplishment. You get to see the thing slowly take shape. You get to see the thing build. You get to see the thing run in a browser. You get to see the thing run on the internet. So you get this immediate sense of, of, of um, satisfaction and a real deep understanding connection to what you do and how it, how it works. You pull the lever, you see the, the, the thing move, and that, that feedback loop is really important. I think also feedback loops are really important for mastery because, you know, if the thing you do, you don't learn whether it's been successful for six months, a year, two years, it's really difficult to improve. Whereas with design and with engineering, like you put it out there and you get immediate feedback. You know, in engineering, if it doesn't render, or if it renders slow or, if, or, or there's something wrong, you immediately know something's broken. From design, if you share it with your team and your team immediately say, well, that doesn't work, that doesn't make sense, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, you also get a really, really strong sense of feedback. And so like, there's been a lot of research around what early conditions make people do a certain thing. Like, Why does somebody decide to be a constant peerless or why does somebody decide to be an artist? And often it's like when you are a kid, it's the thing that the that, that one person says you're good at. You know, or gives you gives you praise. You know, you might be a bad pianist, but your piano teacher, who you look up to and respect, says, "Oh, you did a really good job," and you get that learning thing. So next time I'm going to do better. Next time I'm going to do better. You, you're, you're a painter. So a lot of the time, it's just like where you got the early praise from, where you got the early sense of accomplishment. 
And so I got an early sense of accomplishment from both the design and from the engineering side of things. I guess when I was an early web designer, you would do a bit of everything. As the industry matured, you had to decide to specialize. You know, um, gone were the days where you could do front end, back end, JavaScript, you know, SQL, HTML, CSS, and visual design. And so I ended up moving more towards the, 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 the front end of the equation. I wrote one of the first CSS books in the market called CSS Mastery, which um, went on to sell like a million plus copies. There was a beautiful week where it was out selling Harry Potter. Which was 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 like you know still my claim to fame here. Take that, J.K. Rowling. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Um, and um, and um, and so I really, really love the front end, but but the design side of things just felt, um, yeah, I don't know why. Like again, I think a lot of it comes down to the understanding of human nature, wanting to understand how people tick, find it fascinating when the thing that you think will work perfectly doesn't, and then wanting to understand why. And so again, it was that kind of like discovering usability testing, discovering information architecture, discovering all of these fields that would help you make a better product and realizing that actually I could have a bigger influence by following that route than I could be to make more performant code or to make the button look a little bit more jelly or shinier or whatever it was. And so I kind of definitely went down the human factors, UI, interaction design, kind of user-centered design route. It's a wonderful little backstory. I, I want to talk a little bit about ClearLeft. You know, you spent 13 years as a managing director. Uh, you helped found the agency. The agency is incredibly well known, at least in the design uh, world. Um, so we have to spend a little bit of time talking about that. And then we're going to move on and talk about design's evolution and, and how to create great products and a bunch of other stuff. And I guess where I wanted to start is just for people listening that may not know much about ClearLeft, can you give them a quick overview and talks about, I guess, w- what ClearLeft specialized in in some of the companies you worked with? And that sort of follows on from what I was saying before, actually, which is, I think in, in the sort of the, the the sort of the early noughties, I was exploring visual design, I was exploring front end, and I was exploring these yet to be defined topics that kind of loosely revolved around information architecture, usability testing, prototyping. I wanted to start an agency because I was frustrated with what I saw was the the low quality of output and the low quality of service. Back in the day, basically web design was that you would take a brief from a client, you would open up Photoshop and you start moving boxes around. And it was more about like what it looked like, having a really cool swoosh in the logo. Hey, maybe we'll try a three column layout instead of a two column layout. But it was very, very basic. And I felt there had to be a better way. Coming from a background of science, coming from a background of engineering, I kind of had this sort of art and science view of, of design, actually partly inspired by a friend of mine, a, a guy called uh, Jeff Veen, who wrote a book called The Art and Science of Web Design, which was very influential to me. So I wanted to take a more scientific approach to design to figure out how we could release products and services that work better. So when it was sort of time to start starting my agency, I thought, well, hey, look, I was really well known in the CSS space. Like I was a I was a well-known blogger at the time. Like there, you know, and it was easy to be a well-known blogger in, in the late 90s and early noughties because no one was doing it. But like I had one of the top like 50 traffic blogs in the UK. Uh, you know, and you know, a lot of people are like, I wonder what Andy's gonna do um, you know, in this space. And so I thought about maybe starting an agency that would be web standards, like CSS, because that at the time was like cutting edge. 
But I guess my belief was that web standards would, you know, very, very quickly become the dominant way of delivering websites. And so building a brand around a thing that like in two or three years would be table stakes felt like it was not going to have that longevity. Whereas there was this new thing that was bubbling up, um, which an agency in the US had called user experience design. And they were the first agency I came across called Adaptive Path that talked about user experience design, how they brought together these fields of research, information architecture, and prototyping. And I thought, that's what I want to do, because I've been doing these things already, but I didn't have a name for it. So we started Clear Left, and we started Clear Left, and we, we called ourselves a user experience design agency. At the time, I believe we were the first company to use that language. There were companies out there that were researchers. There were companies out there that were IA companies. There were companies out there that were doing a bit of kind of prototyping and interaction design. But I believe to this day that we were the first agency that that really started describing ourselves as user experience design in the UK. And maybe only one of sort of four or five at the time that were, were doing this. This was really problematic in the early days because we go to a customer and they say, well, like, you know, how much are you going to charge us? And we'll give them a figure. And I say, well, that's twice as much as your competitors. What are you doing? Like, and then I'll explain, well, we, you know, we'll go out and talk to customers and we'll figure out what their needs are. And then we'll prototype and then we'll test and then we'll design. And they'll be like, well, this other company, they're just going to open up in Photoshop and they'll be done in a week. Like, why do we need all this other stuff? And so for the first three or four years, it was a real, real challenge to kind of get customers to see the value of what we did. But slowly over time, more people started talking about this subject. More people started realizing that that actually there was value in building products that worked for customers rather than just look nice. Um, and I guess about sort of 2008, 2009, like we were in a bit of a zeitgeist. At that time, UX, even though there's still not that many people doing it, UX has become a, like a hot subject. There were kind of newspaper articles and magazine articles, like the top 10 coolest, you know, job titles of this summer. And UX was like one of them. You know, people were kind of like discovering this UX thing and going, oh, well, I'm a designer, but maybe I need to use, understand this thing. And actually, if I call myself a UX designer, I can double my day rate overnight. And so there was this kind of like massive sort of trend towards this new subject. Um, we actually started the UK's and possibly Europe's first UX conference called UX London. I think in around kind of 2008, 2009, it's still going to this day. And so like we were really at the heart of this movement. And I think a lot of people kind of ask, like, you know, what your, you know, like what your secret is or what your skill is. And a lot of people will kind of like, you know, come up with some answer that centers them in, in, in the solution. Like I was, I was just like really smart, really clever. I worked really hard. We were just lucky, you know, like had we decided to start a UX agency two years beforehand, would have been too early. Had we decided to start a thing called UX two years late, two years later, we, it would have been over. We would have kind of not been interesting. Or, you know, we just happened to be at the right place at the right time. We put the right money on the right horse and we rode it for, for quite a, a long time. The downside is the UX space then got oversaturated. Um, the language and the terminology got meaningless. And then that, you know, that thing that was a benefit for a while then became problematic because, you know, I would, you know, towards the end of kind of like 2015, like every agency called itself a UX design agency. I'd go to companies and look at them. They were engineering companies. They had 50 engineers. They had one designer, but all on the homepage are like, hey, we're a UX company. It's like, well, no, you're not. But the problem is if everyone starts telling you they're a thing and people start hiring people because they think they're their thing, then what they consume from that company, they believe to be the thing. And so suddenly this term got incredibly devalued to the point that it was kind of meaningless because 
people were using it as a title to justify winning work and, and, and charging a certain amount was they weren't actually sort of following the, the practice. And so I'd say kind of by the time sort of 2015, 2016, like the, the bubble had been kind of let out of the kind of the UX space. You know, one of the pieces that you talked about there that I really like is, you know, that you're approaching the the problem of design as part science and part art. And and one of the questions I wanted to ask was just around design culture. You know, Clear Left has obviously done a lot of, um, you know, incredible work for incredible clients. You've also been able to do that for over a decade, which I would assume as a, you know, a marker of a, I would assume very few agencies survive more, <laughs> more than a decade at the kind of level of prominence that Clear Left does. And so one of the questions I want to ask is just what do you, as you think about the culture Culture, the design culture at Clear Left. What do you think you got right, and, and what do you think you got right about the way your team approached the work, and your the way your team worked together internally, and also the way that you worked with clients? I think there are a couple of ways of building an agency. I think the way most people do it is because they're building a business, and so what they do is they hire a lot of junior people. Often they give them the title of senior or principal. They charge them out for a very very high amount of money. The work is kind of mediocre, but it doesn't really matter because everyone else in the market, if the work is mediocre, you don't really notice. And then what you have is you have a few more senior people at the top kind of overseeing. So you kind of have this sort of pyramid where the talent is centered at the top and then you've got all these delivery people. You kind of churn through these people every couple of years and it doesn't really matter because you're seeing them as a little bit more cannon fodder. And that's how the agency world usually works. The challenge with having a lot of junior people is you need to have a big middle middle management tier of account managers and project managers, because if the people don't know what they're doing, you kind of need to steer them in the right direction. You need to make sure they're hitting their deadlines, et cetera, et cetera. But if you can get that working and you can scale up, you can make a profitable business, but you're making a relatively small margin off each individual person. But if you scale up to two, three, four, five hundred thousand person agency, you can make a, a big business. So if you're wanting to build a big agency, you have this sort of Faustian pact or, or, or this kind of like compromise where you go, okay, I want to make money. And so the, 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 the thing I have to trade off is quality. Um, and it doesn't really matter. Like if we do, if we do a, a bit of media work for one company, like it won't matter because there'll be another company along in a week's time and we'll do some, you know. And so I think that was kind of often the kind of the attitude. We were completely the other way around. We were designers. We wanted to create a company where designers wanted to work. And so our philosophy was always hire the best people we possibly can. Um, and uh, one of the challenges with that is, of, like, again, again, sort of you, you kind of get this sort of, um, there, were, there were two kinds of leaders in, in, and two kinds of creative leaders. You kind of have the, the sort of like the, the black turtleneck wearing kind of design leader who positions herself at the top of the pyramid. And they want to be the best, most knowledgeable designer in the team. And so they just fill it with underlings. And, and so what happens is those people, you hire them to serve your ego. You serve them to tell you, oh, you're a brilliant designer. I want to work with you. I want to do all this kind of stuff because you're amazing. And that's great for your ego, not necessarily good for the work. My approach has always been the opposite. I have always hired people who are much better than me, which means that I have always been the worst person in my company. I've been the worst designer because I've hired better designers. I've been the worst researcher because I've hired better researchers. I've been the worst front-end developer. I've been the worst business person, the worst salesperson. Like I am terrible at all these things and I know I'm terrible at all these things. So I need to hire people that are betting me. But that approach of constantly hire people that better are you than hiring people that are better than them means that you're constantly aiming towards this sort of sense of perfection. Um, we, you know, 
language is always really important I, I, or difficult. I saw somebody tweet the other day, like, the only way to build a startup is to hire, hire A plus players. Language kind of like makes me feel a little bit nervous because it's a way of kind of, you know, like boxing people in to, to, to how good they are. But at the same time, I think that's where we were. We, we hired really, really good people. We hired really talented people. People would come to Clear Left because they would know they were going to be surrounded by other people. Like if you're a really good designer, you've got two options. You can go and be the, the best designer in a team, but then who are you going to learn from? Or you go into a company like Clear Left where you're, you're not the best designer in the team by any stretch of the imagination. And you go into meetings and you're learning every day. You're being exposed to amazing design work. You're being pushed and forced to kind of be out of your comfort zone. And you can't let up. It can be stressful at times. Like, you, you know, if other people are coming in and doing really amazing work, it forces you to be your best. And so being in this kind of hothouse is really, really impressive. It's really, really fun. But it doesn't scale, you know. It's really difficult. And the people that say it does, the people that say, oh, yeah, we've got a, you know, we've got a thousand person company, all, all A plus players. You're probably kidding yourself. And you're partly kidding yourself because actually you need people to do all the stuff that the A plus players don't want to do. You know, so you need, you know, if you're scaling, you need to have people to do the maintenance, to do the the boring jobs, et cetera, et cetera. Um, whereas at Clearleft, we were able to kind of, because we were so small, we were able to turn down work we didn't like, that we didn't think would be something that would keep the team engaged. So our model wasn't kind of like to try and grow the company as quickly as possible. It was to try and hoover up the best workers possible to give it to the best designers to make sure that they had a really, really great time. And so as a result, like in a time when people were churning at companies every 18 months, we would have people that had been with us for six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11 years. And every time they started looking over the fence to go somewhere else, they'd be like, oh, well, actually your company doesn't do X. Like, you know, your company doesn't give a generous travel bonus. You don't go to South by Southwest or these other conferences each year. You expect us to work at 80%, 90% capacity rather than sort of 40, 50, 60%. Half of the work we do is kind of like mediocre kind of grinding work, whereas all the work you do is like big, interesting kind of meaty challenges. And so we just find a sweet spot where we could be a really, really good, talented, but small team of individuals that if you knew and cared about what good looked like, you would come to us. But if you didn't, if you just needed a team of 30, 40 people to stick in a bunch of seats, you go to a big networked agency and that was absolutely fine. And so we found our niche. And so weirdly, I think Clearleft were much more impactful into the design industry than our small size would kind of sort of indicate. Like I'd go to conferences and people go, oh yeah, Clearleft, there might be 100 people, 200 people. And it's like, no, we're the kind of 30 of us. And people are like, what, there's only 30 of you? Because we we were very vocal. We were very public. We spoke at conferences. We wrote books. We wrote articles. You know, I, I don't, I, I've, I can't, don't know how many books came out of Clear Left, but like 10, 15 best-selling books in various tech sort of fields. You know, we were speaking at like 50, 100 conferences a year, which is crazy for a 30-person team. But we kind of hit that zeitgeist where people were like, oh, this is really interesting. And then everything kind of went a little bit in a, a, the wrong direction, which we might come on to in a second. I don't know. <laughs> Well, I love, I, I mean, I love the model and I just love how values oriented and values focused you are in the things that you do. Like very clearly you and your two other co-founders of Clear Left had a very clear idea of what you wanted to do. And it was very different from what the typical norm was. And you were very clear on what, you know, the trade-offs that you were making. Um, I, I want to kind of move to the other end of the spectrum or kind of the other side of that coin. So we talked about internally what the culture was like. I want to talk a little bit about what you learned about the challenges that companies face by working with, you know, you, you, you've had some incredible clients at Clear Left, JP Morgan, World Wildlife Fund, Burberry, Virgin 
Virgin Atlantic. What did you learn about the challenges that they faced and what did you learn about the role that design can play in helping these businesses and helping these companies? That is a really, really tough question. And I don't have a particularly good or pithy answer to that, I'm afraid. What I find with design and with companies getting value from design is you can be as, you know, you could be a great cheerleader for design. You can be a great champion. You can put the amazing deck together. You can tell people, you can go in and pitch, you know, we've pitched, you know, we, we did work with kind of, you know, penguin books and, and people like that. You can go in and sort of proselytize the value of design to these companies. But on an intellectual level, they get it. But on a practical day-to-day level, they've just got stuff they need to do. They've got to get product out in the hands of customers. They've got to make money. They've got to hit their revenue targets. And so there's often a kind of a, a, um, a mismatch, I think, between designer's belief in the impact design can have and the practical ability for organizations to adopt that. So what I see happening is it's a change process. It's a change mechanism that happens over a number of years. You know, um, you go in and immediately you try and sell the value of design, but the business has got to get something out the door. So they get it out the door and it's not very well designed. It's not very well thought through. And because of that, reception is lukewarm, traction is lukewarm. That becomes a learning point for those founders. The the founders, the, the board go, okay, well, something hasn't worked here. What is it? Maybe we need to go and do some research first. And so then you get budget for research and you go out and do research. And then the next iteration is better. But it's still not perfect. So what do we need to do here? Well, well, we need to do some prototyping. We need to test a few variations. And then, and so what happens is over the course of the life of a product, over the course of three, four, five, six, seven years, you slowly are able to incrementally improve the product by layering on the next layer of design, the next layer of design, the next layer of design, until eventually it becomes embedded into the success of the, the company that the company understands now, oh, okay, so this is what you can do. This is the effect you can have. And a really good example of that is a friend of mine, kind of Stuart Clark Frisbee. He was the fifth design hire at Booking.com, maybe 10 years ago. And um, he came in to kind of lead this sort of five-person team. And Booking.com, as you know, is a very, very kind of like financially focused, performance focused, kind of engineering focused, you know, um, company. But very quickly, Stuart was able to, to demonstrate to the CEO that for every dollar they gave the design team, they turn it into five. So, you know, here's $5, turn it into 25. Here's $25, turn it, you know. And so he was able to show the impact that design could have. And that's the only way you can do it. You can't really do it with, with the PowerPoint deck and the presentation. And, and I tried, you know, I tried to use my position in the design industry as this thought leader, this person that founded this like really impactful company. That would get us through the door. That would get us the interviews, that would get us the meetings, that would get us a few champions on the board. Like what, what would typically happen is, you know, the, the designers would kind of, oh, we really want to work with Clear Left and we'd get into the interview. But we'd be other five other companies that, that, that didn't have this approach. And then we still had to kind of like have the sort of battle royale until they picked the company. And so I think the key was not to push it, not to be too judgmental, not to be too campaigny, but to demonstrate the value and to realize that this is a long haul. Like, we worked with companies like Virgin Holidays and Virgin Atlantic. And we would love to have gone in and we'd love to have a story that said, like, we came in and just through the power of design, we transformed this business overnight. 
But it took us three or four years. It took us a couple of years just to be able to be able to sit down with the, the CEO of the company. Like we start with the CTO and then we navigate to the you know head of product and you know CPO and and eventually you're having coffee and dinner with the, the CEO of this big organization. And trying to kind of like explain the value, trying to get the language built in and trying to really, really communicate what you can deliver. It takes time and it takes small projects that turn into bigger projects, turn into bigger projects, small outcomes that turn into bigger outcomes that turn into bigger outcomes. You know, now I'm actually like pretty good friends with the the the, the sort of the, the XMD of, 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 of Virgin Holidays because he really sort of, towards the end of his tenure there, really saw the value. He really saw that if you could bring in designers, if you could bring in people like us, we could kind of really turn the ship around. But even then, like that's a brand like Virgin that is a really experiential brand. You know, try that with JP Morgan and you've got a whole different kettle of fish there. Yeah. I, I want to come back at the end and talk about some lessons you learned just over the 13 years in, in kind of building and launching Clear Left. But I guess the question I wanted to ask now to kind of close this out and then we'll move on to some of the evolution of design is, you know, you made the decision, I think it was in 2020, to step down as the managing director after 13 years. And you kind of hinted at before, you know, entering maybe a new phase where things were a little bit rockier, for, you know, for the business and for the company. I'd love it if you could talk a little bit about, you know, those last few years, what was happening, and then specifically just the decision, making the decision to step down. I think what I'd be curious there is how difficult of a decision was that for you to make? And then secondarily, you know, um, if you could walk us through your process in making it. And, and really, the reason I'm asking that question is, you know, leaving an agency that you founded after 13 years is a massive decision. <laughs> and so anything you can lend to people listening about how you went through that decision, I think would be really valuable. I mean, there's a couple of things there which aren't necessarily associated. Um, but but so I'll start with one first, which is kind of like the, the journey. So I think, um, like I said earlier, like UX was its dominance in kind of like somewhere between 2009 to 2015. And the web was still a little bit more of a kind of a maker culture. Like a lot of the people who were kind of like well-known at the time, who were prominent figures, who were kind of driving the the kind of the, the direction of travel were bloggers. They were authors. They were speakers. They ran small agencies, us, Happy Cog, Adaptive Path, kind of Cuban Council, some really, really great agencies. But then all these startups started popping up. And in the early days, Facebook didn't have any designers and Google didn't have any designers. And then they had one designer. Then they had five. Then they had 10. They had 50. Then they had, they had 1,000. Suddenly, the, 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 the heat and the emphasis moved from the agencies to the tech companies. And now if you were a young designer, you wouldn't want to go and work at an agency. You would go and work at, at Google or Facebook or Airbnb. And so I think what ended up happening with that is that agencies still had a really, really prominent role to play, but their cultural impact um, kind of sort of started to level off, which is absolutely fine. And this is not any reason why I left the company and it's not really any reason, you know, but it was just kind of just interesting to watch how that had happened. And I think what had happened is it had gone from being a craft-based industry to a professional industry. It had gone to an industrial industry. You know, if you were a, a, a carpenter at the turn of the century, you'd go to your local kind of artisan. If you're a carpenter now or a furniture designer, you go to Ikea. There's just, there's a no-brainer there. And so the, the Googles and Facebooks and Airbnbs were the sort of the Ikeas, like they were delivering design at scale. This is also kind of like how my interest sort of moved into design leadership. Because a lot of my friends who were once bloggers and, and, and speakers and whatever started leading a team of five people inside a big tech company, then 10, then 20, then 30, then 40. And so I got really, really interested in how designers can lead design at scale. This is also kind of 
where my interest in coaching kind of emerged from as well. I do a lot of time working with heads, directors and VPs of product and design, how they can kind of launch this. And so I kind of, I was having lots of conversations with my friends and I was having the same conversations over and over again, how they were struggling to get the value of design recognized. And I thought rather than having lots of individual coffees, I will start a conference. So I started a conference called Leading Design and I started a design leadership community. And so I guess my interest moved from this sort of craft-based system into trying to have a bigger impact at, at bigger scale companies. Like, Because my mission has always been to try and get design a seat at the table. And I realized that there was a there was a period where the best vehicle for that was agencies, when we had the biggest impact. But then that had moved. And so I started kind of moving in that direction. And so this was sort of, I'm kind of jumping ahead a little bit here, but but where I've ended up in my career now is I've moved from running an agency to coaching people and working in the venture space. The coaching people allows me to help companies design at bigger companies, have a bigger impact. And the venture space allows me to help early stage founders bake design into the culture and core of the, the company so that um, those future leaders don't have as much resistance. And so that's the kind of direction I started heading in. That's the kind of the thinking I started to have. And so I realized it was time, if I wanted to have the impact that I wanted to have in the world and continue having that impact, it probably was going to be outside of, of the, um, the agency world. But I love ClearLeft. I still love ClearLeft. Um, while I have left, I'm still a, a director. I'm still a, a minority shareholder. I'm still on the board. I'm still on the trust. Um, and so I wanted to make sure that when I left ClearLeft, it still would thrive. It was a difficult decision because I think having built your own company for sort of 13, 14, 15 years, you identify it with it. It becomes part of your personality. And so, you know, I think I probably would have and possibly should have left two or three years earlier, but I wanted to slowly disentangle my own identity from the company, partly for my own ability and sanity, but also I wanted to empower the team that was leaving behind. Like I, what I didn't want to do is I didn't want, because I was quite visible when I was seen as the MD, I was speaking at these conferences and events. And if I just kind of left out of the blue and there was nobody to step in, there was no one to take my place, it might have been seen as like, well, this is the end of clear left. And so I wanted to do it slowly. And so my first step was assembling a leadership team. And then my next step was to kind of slowly step back from that leadership team to let them take over. But to be there, I you know, went down to Bali for, for two or three months and, and worked remotely and to see how the team would sort of survive when I'm in a different time zone. I took a six or eight week sabbatical to see how they would survive and how they would cope when I wasn't around at all. And slowly I built up confidence that the team would be able to take this forward. And slowly the team built up confidence that they could take it forward. I moved out of the day-to-day -day running of the agency and focused for a year or so just on the event space because the event space was really driven by my, my network, but then also kind of slowly started handing over more responsibility to the events team to the point that I woke up one day and realized I'm no longer needed. Like I, I've built a company that is self-sustaining and I could step away from that company and actually nobody would notice. And that's a weird thing. I don't have kids, but I imagine it's similar to like when your kids go to university and you're like, oh, on one level, I feel proud that I've built these amazing independent people with their own kind of thoughts and, 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 and viewpoint in the world. But also it's sad that I'm no longer needed. 
And yes, yeah, sure, I might see them at board meetings. I might see them at Christmas. I'm mixing my metaphors there. They might come home every now and again and, and need their laundry doing. But largely, these are kind of independent people. So it took maybe three or four or five years for me to emotionally untangle and also for me to set the company up in a way that I felt it would be happy and work well without me. And the last part of that step was to initiate a buyout of the company by the team. So Clearleft has now become an employee-owned business, which means that the employees, the people that are, frankly, the ones that are responsible for success, the people who are better than me at the design and the research and all that kind of stuff, are now stakeholders. They get to make more decisions around where the company goes, and they get to profit from the success of the business. And so I'm really, really pleased that I left it on that that. Um, way because a lot of people a lot of founders when they get bored they try and sell it and if you sell the company you can get a nice exit individually often the team don't necessarily benefit they get handed over to some other buyer some other owner that doesn't really value them as much as um as as they could and the whole thing kind of disappears and so i've seen a lot of founders who leave And the company just kind of like crumbles a year or so afterwards. So I wanted to make sure that the company was resilient and had a reason to stay alive, but also was kind of defensible from from acquisition because we were constantly getting tapped up by by M&As. We were constantly being tapped up by big technical implementers that wanted to buy Clearleft because of the, the brand and the value and the work we did. And so I wanted to make sure that if I left, the company could carry on being itself and surviving in its own right. I mean, congratulations on the way you ended it, because I think there are very few, to, to, you know, I think what I've observed to your point that you said is, you know, that the default path, I think when I, when a prominent founder leaves is kind of implosion and that implosion can be around just the change and not being intentional and thoughtful enough about it. It can be just not taking the right steps and take, you know, making that move slowly. And so I think it's incredible that you were able to slowly and methodically, and obviously it was very personal, you know, and I totally get having to untangle your own identity, which is much more about, you know, you than, than the team. But I think it's incredible you've been able to set that team up for for success. One of the good things that I wanted to talk about today is just the evolution of design. I've worked as a designer for the last 15 years. I've seen a massive shift in in design. And just really quickly, you know, I was one of the first, not not one of the first, I was one of the million people that ended up buying CSS Mastery, you know, <laughs> really? that book. And uh, building websites was was a formative part of my early career. Just even hearing you mention Cuban Council and Happy Cog, these, you know, brings back a lot of memories because similarly, I started out in the web space, have had to try to, you know, figure out my own evolution o- over time. Um, and so even just in the purview that I've had, which is smaller than yours, I've witnessed a pretty massive transformation in the field, you know, and, and all of the things that you've talked about resonated with me, the move from freelancing and agencies to working in house, trying to actually build out teams, doing scalable design. Um, all these things are really interesting. One of the things I just want to ask you kind of a big wide open question is what are some of the biggest changes that you've seen? And I guess what are some of the positives and negatives as you kind of maybe jump back in time 20 years and then, and then reflect on where we are today? Basically, I discovered the web through the amazing work of, of people that have been working on it 10 years before me. Um, I kind of see those people like the kind of the old school blues musicians, like they set the foundations, they would hop on trains across America, they would travel from state to state, they would lay down records, but they were poor, they didn't make any money because they were doing it for the love of music. I think sort of my generation of the web were kind of the sort of the early kind of, you know, rock musicians who discovered the work of of B.B. King and Robert Johnson and all these amazing icons. And they discovered it and fell in love with it. 
And they started exploring this music. They started making their own. And they started bands, you know, Rolling Stones, Fleetwood Mac, you know, like Eric Clapton, whatever, the Yardbirds. And the people that were in that generation, they did it primarily out of a love for the music. And some of them just stayed playing in local bands and, and, and gigging. But some of them did the smaller venues and then the bigger venues and then the bigger venues and they got popular and they got picked up and then they got successful and then they built the mansions and they had the, the, the kind of the jet set lifestyle, but still there's individuals, the thing that sustained them and still I think sustained them to the day was a love of the music and love of the craft. And so I think there's a whole generation of people who I met in that, that have that similar vibe that were the bloggers that were the, the makers that were the kind of the early class people. I think what's happened now is the industry has become an industry. It's stopped being kind of like happening, you know, kind of grassroots stuff. And it's become this kind of big kind of stock aching and Waterman kind of like produced sort of money-making machine. And a lot of people now have the sort of the X factor kind of mindset is like, they see the old rock musicians with the house and the car and the jet. And they go, I want the house and the car and the jet. What did these people do to get the house and the car and jet? Oh, they played music. I'll play music. So, they discover music, they love music, but the, th the thing that's driving them often is the output, the success, the jet, the car, et cetera, et cetera. And so I often find that there is a hollowness or shallowness in some of the people that I meet today in the industry because they're not kind of like deep in the roots of, of the craft. But I also realize that's an incredibly privileged, incredibly probably unfair and naive kind of viewpoint because actually the people that are kind of chasing that kind of X factorization that want to go, they want to speak at that one conference or elevate them to get that job or whatever. Like they've worked really hard. They've got a huge amount of debt that's been built up through university. They've got, you know, the, the opportunities, you know, it's not, I could kind of like, you know, not work and learn and study and teach myself back in the day. Like it's much harder to do that now. So I think we are in a much more commercial environment and because we're in a much more commercial environment, the days of the kind of the blues musician and the kind of like the, the budding kind of like, you know, um, rock band have gone. And it is an industry. And I, I see a lot of people of my age and my ilk that are kind of like bemoan it. You, you often get articles going, oh, with a UX design, oh, you know, the industry was so much better 10 years ago. And for that, that group of people, I think it was. But I think we're in a different environment, a different time. And actually, the web has become a career. And I do not begrudge people from navigating through that career in a very, very good way. Like I meet, I meet a lot of people that are my generation now that maybe took them 15 years to be head of design. I come across a lot of young designers now that have taken three or four years. And those people that took 15 years are often really begrudging. Like, oh, that's really unfair. You haven't done your time. You haven't worked your way up. But those people that took it three or four years are often like battled through kind of ice and fire. You know, they started as designer number one in a startup. They hire the first designer, the second designer, third designer. They raise series A. They hire five more designers. They raise series B. They hire 20 more designers. In three or four years' time, that designer that is now leading a team of 30 people has probably had the same level of life experience that that person that took 15 years that kind of slowly worked through more traditional companies, waited for the person ahead of them to retire, and then they moved into that stuff. So I think there's, there's huge opportunities for designers to kind of elevate and escalate their career. The other thing is, I think at the moment, is those early designers had to put down all the groundwork, had to put down all the foundations. So it took time. Whereas now, I think the current the crop of designers don't have to learn all this stuff. Like a lot of the stuff, like 80% of what I learned in my career is now irrelevant. 
I don't need to, you know, you, you'll appreciate this. Like, I don't need to know what a shim GIF is anymore. I don't need to know what table-based layout is. I don't need to understand how to do kind of marquees or, you know, web safe colors. Like, I spent so much of my time. You don't even have to code now. Sorry? Yeah, no, no, no. You just, <laughs> you know, you don't even have to code no. now. I feel like as a designer, you used to, you know, code was like an extension of your tool set. Yep, yep. You know, web, you'll, 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 you'll open up Webflow and you'll need to have some appreciation. Um, but, but you know, your, your hand will be held. And so, so much of what I've learned has been useless. And so no wonder that it took me 15 years or 20 years to get to where I am that some people are taking three or four years. So yeah, I, you know, I, I applaud them. And, and a lot of, like I say, a lot of the work I do with my coaching clients is helping these design leaders who it's their first design role or their second design role, and they don't know what they don't know. And they want to, you know, lean on someone that has 15, 20 years experience. They can go, okay, like, this thing you're seeing here that you think is really weird and and you're wondering whether you've got imposter syndrome and you're doing it wrong. No, this happens to everybody. This is really normal for their first job. This is really normal for your second job. This is how you approach it. This is what you need to think about. Don't worry, I've got you. And so I can just be a kind of a, a sort of a slightly wiser kind of co-pilot now that can kind of just make the, the main pilot kind of feel safe and secure. And I'm really, really enjoying that on the, the coaching side of what I do. And so that's really empowering that i can i can use all that knowledge to help the next generation of, of leaders do a much better job than we could ever do much faster much more successfully yeah i mean you packed in so much there i love the analogy of you know kind of jazz musicians and this kind of grassroots movement that then led to a new wave of musicians that were inspired by that group you know try to take design to a new place that definitely resonates you know some of the things that kind of come to mind some of the things i've thought about that i thought i would share and i'd love your kind of thoughts on is part of i think what i've observed to your point of you know design it, with some of the people working in design design appearing as this kind of I don't know, very thin, almost mirage it is, you know, part of design moving from being a grassroots movement to now being much bigger is you have designers that are like lost in layers of middle management that have made the decision at some point in time that they're not going to do design. And I've, you know, worked with, with design managers or design head, you know, heads of design that haven't done design in a decade plus. And I think that it becomes, you know, my sense of design is that it really is much more like an apprenticeship and designers should almost work together as peers. And yes, you do need hierarchy, but the best teams I've always been on are all people that have skin in the game, their hands on design and haven't gotten too detached from it. So I think that's part of it is just people getting lost and trying to navigate the, do I manage? Do I do design? <laughs> I'm now 10 years into my career. Why haven't I made that transition piece? Yeah. And then I think the second piece is to your point, it's just become much, much, much bigger and much, much different. And so when you have a team now of 20 people and you have junior designers and senior designers and art directors and creative directors and a head of design, you know, there's much more layers to try to navigate. And I don't know, I've just seen a lot of people, I think get stuck in that. And then just the last thing I was going to share is what, you know, I've similarly worked with a lot of founders and, you know, one of the things that I still find very surprising is that, um, not, not surprising, but, but that to me is just, I, I have this jolting experience very commonly where I'll work with a founder and you just realize how little is understand is understood about design and design best practices. And what I mean by that is, I think in engineering, there's become these canonical books that you can go and pick up off the bookshelf that kind of teach you or give you a great overview of how design works within a, within a, a technology company. Sorry, how engineering works within a technology company. It doesn't feel like design's gotten there. And so it feels like a very young industry that's still trying to figure out best practices. And those best practices aren't really widely known or widely distributed. Any thoughts on you know any of those points? There's so many things there. I think so many good thoughts that I've probably forgotten half of them that you said, so you might need to give me a bit of a reminder. But in terms of that last one, I mean, I think 
I think some of it is around the professionalization of design. There is a generation of designers that I've talked about, me included, who had to understand how the back end of the front end worked because there was only one person doing it, the web designer. I had to understand PHP. I had to understand MySQL. I had to understand JavaScript. I had to understand visual design. And I had to understand user experience design or interaction design. So I have a good overview of how all of these fit together. It also means that I'm not particularly good at any one of them because I've, you know, in the early stages, at least I, I didn't, wasn't able to specialize. I specialized later on in my career. But I think these days what happens is you come into an industry and you have a very specific role. You don't start as a general person that understands how everything fits together. You start as a designer. And if you start as a designer in an agency where every three months you're being given a different problem for a different customer, a different user, a different end user, you can iterate and learn really, really quickly because you're designing, you're getting the zero to one problem. You're designing something from scratch usually each time, or at least improving something significant. As design scales, you might find yourself on one designer on a team of 60 people. You might be on the 60-person design team that is responsible for the Google homepage, excluding the Google Doodle. So basically, you're one of 60 designers that is designing a drop-down and some type ahead stuff. And that's really good, and it's really exciting, and you get paid really well, and you've got a, a, a climbing gym, and you've got you know free laundry, and you've got all these amazing things. And frankly, a year and a half of working at Google, no matter what you've done, Every startup in the world want to hire you. But when you come out of that year and a half and you show your portfolio and you're like, hey, well, like I, I moved type ahead from three characters to four characters and I worked on that for 18 months. A lot of designers now are, because they're in this kind of big industrial level thing, they are, they are part of a much, much smaller machine. They are not the chef de partie or, or whatever it is. They're not the head chef that's kind of thinking up the, the meals, which is what you would be in an agency. You are doing the prep work. You're the KP. You're, today I've got to peel a thousand potatoes. Tomorrow I've got to chop a, a thousand carrots. And your knife skills get really brilliant, but your ability to then go off and, and design a menu or do a pop-up or whatever is really, really greatly compromised. So I think it's problematic for a lot of young designers. I think actually their ability to grow and, and scale becomes really difficult if you are doing a really, really small part of a much bigger problem. So I can understand the situation they're in. And I think in terms of like the maturity and and, and the, the 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 growth of the of the industry, that's where it's gone. It's gone to hyper specialization, a very, very small cog in a wheel. And if you remember, like one of the things I said um, earlier in our conversation was how when I was a younger designer, I loved the ability to, you know see the impact I've 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 had at the end of the day. Like I remember talking to one designer who was in a big tech company for nine months and he was tasked with um redesigning an icon. Spent a week designing the icon, three months pitching it, get feedback. A week designing the icon, three months pitching it, get feedback. This person was nine months in. They'd worked on a single icon. They hadn't got it over the line yet. They hadn't got it released. And, then, and this person was like, well, what am I going to show my next employer? When, when I go to Airbnb or Facebook or Google and they say, what have you been doing? And you say, well, actually, I, I almost designed this icon, but I've really been spent most of my time getting over the line and getting it approved. And you can understand why. Like if this icon is going to be seen by 5 billion people a day, like it better be the, the world's best icon. And, you know, you want to make sure that the, the the shade of blue is the perfect shade of blue to get the maximum amount of clicks because 0.2% difference in the performance of this icon could be hundreds of millions of pounds. So the stress is there, but it's just, it's, it's a really, really tough, different environment. 
Well, I think, you know, related to that, I guess the way I've thought about that is it feels like now the challenge is it if you're a designer is it's it's not so much about the company that you're going to go and work with, but it's the what the actual day to day work looks like and how much ownership and control you're going to have. And also just how functional the environment is to come up with ideas, discuss and those, you know, discuss and debate those ideas and try to come up with consensus or at least a decision on a direction to head. Because I think to your point, it's now every company wants design. That's the plus. The downside is almost no company actually understands how to harness the power of design or set design up for success. And so your challenge as a designer becomes how do you try to find that company where you can not just do great work, but not feel like you're bashing your head against a wall and actually feel like you've got some ownership and control? Which is sort of where your your comments around the leadership come come in. And also sort of weirdly, why I, I think I slightly disagree, but I'm not entirely sure. Um, like if you are that designer that's been working on an icon for nine months and not getting over the line, or if you're that designer that's been, that's been trying to design the drop down, moving from three to four characters in the type ahead or whatever, you might find that really frustrating. And so you go, well, how can I fix this? Well, the way you fix it is, oh, I need to get more power. I need to be the head of that team. And if I just am the head of that team, I will solve all these problems. I will I will empower my designers. I will release their creative freedom. And so you become a, a, a lead. And then you realize, well, actually, I don't really have the ability to really influence anything because I'm still at the kind of the, the, the bottom end of the funnel. So you then become a head. And then you become a director. And then you become a VP. And often you're constantly trying to, climb up this ladder in order to make the generation behind you's life a little bit easier. But actually also what ends up happening is you climb up that ladder, you realize that the reason why it's taking nine months to design an icon isn't because they don't get design, it's because this thing probably is going to cost them hundreds of millions of dollars if they get it wrong, which is the designer, you might think, well, this is really ridiculous. So you kind of end up kind of wanting to get into leadership and management to solve the problem. But then you get a much better understanding of what the problem is, and eventually you end up becoming part of the problem, and then the next generation comes up and boots you out. To your point about designers being practitioners, like I know a few incredibly talented design leaders who are also really amazing practitioners, but only a few. I think it's difficult to maintain your craft as you go up the levels because, first of all, it becomes a bit selfish. You know, like your job as a leader is to empower other people. So if you're keeping on taking on design work, you're not, you're, you're not giving the best design work to your team, then that's selfish. But if you're not taking the best design work, are you taking the mediocre work? Well, if you do that, then that's a waste of your time. If you're paying $200,000 know, a year and all you're doing is doing mediocre design work, that's a waste of time as well. And also it's probably a blocker because if you try and take on a, a major piece of design work, but you've got one-to-ones and you've got interviews and you've got kind of performance reviews and all the kind of stuff you need to do as a leader, you're not going to be able to do this. And so what ends up happening is a lot of mid-level managers try and be this sort of player coach where they're both a, a practicing designer and a manager. And what ends up happening is they tend to do both bad. They either don't have enough time to do good design and so they're a blocker and they're frustrating everybody. Or they, they, they're doing too much design work and it means that one-to-ones are getting missed, performance reviews are not being filed. Resource. So at some stage, you have to decide whether you are going to be a manager or practitioner. Fortunately, in a lot of American companies, there's this idea of this kind of dual track, that you can be a IC individual contributor or a manager. That is brilliant, but it's kind of rare around the rest of the world. So a lot of companies end up, end, people end up trying to make lives better by being a leader, and that necessitates them giving up design. And also, if you remember what I said about design as well, like 
if you are making decisions based on what you want to do, if you love design, you're going to choose a thing um, that you love. And so you're going to be doing design all the time and you're probably a bad leader. Like in the same way, like if you've got kids and you still want to be going out drinking as much as you used to, you still want to be buying as much money on clothes and holidays and what have you, you're not looking after your kids well. So when you become a parent, you stop, you know, you get comfortable walking around with like vomit on your clothes or, you know, not worrying about kind of like how cool you look. You're not going out all the time because you've got these other people to look after. I think the same is true of a design leader. At some stage, to be an effective design leader, you have to put away the things that give you the things that you love often, the kind of the the, the long hours of, 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 of flow work, because you're giving that up in order to make other people's lives better. But that is a, a trade-off, and it's often a really, really challenging trade-off for people. I would also say, I think there's a philosophy. Some people go, oh, you can't be a, you know, you can't be a great leader unless you're also an amazing designer. But I don't, I don't buy that. Like I know a few people who have never been designers in the world, but they're great leaders because they understand design, they understand the value of design, they're great at the politics, they're great at the human side, great at the self-care. They're often much better leaders of design than designers because of the designers get trapped. Similarly, like I know some really, really amazing CTOs who have been brilliant coders in the past and still might do some coding in in these days, you know, like um, you know, on the side. But if you're the if you're the head of engineering, if you're the CTO at Slack and you're pushing code updates, you're probably not doing the right job. You know, you're managing a 500,000 person engineering beast and you're managing people who are managing people who are managing people who are doing the code. Like you're doing the wrong thing if that's what you're doing. That's not your job anymore. Um, and so I think if you can be a CTO working at the highest levels of, 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 of some of these tech companies and people aren't expecting you to be shipping code on a daily basis, then we shouldn't be expecting designers to be shipping designs. And I think if you can hire a team that, you know, I've got great, Researchers are great interaction designers, are great visual designers, are great typographers. You are always going to be the worst person on the team. So again, you probably shouldn't be touching the design in the same way as that CTO that hasn't coded in anger for 10 years probably shouldn't be opening up the database and, and, and messing around with the SQL statements because you're probably going to take the whole, the whole site down. And that's not a good look. Yeah, maybe to rephrase it. I mean, I think the better way of saying what I was trying to say is I think the challenge I've observed is to be a great design leader at the highest level, you have to be very good at two very different things. And one of those is the ability to interact with designers and help create a design environment that creates great work. In which case, I would argue, I think CTOs, a, you know, a fair comparison, but designers, my experience with designers is designers are much more emotional. They're much more tied to their craft. There's much more this idea of, it's just much more precious. And with engineers, you know, a lot of how engineering management works, it's like as long as you believe in the rationality and the decision, the objective decision making, you know, to your point earlier, like engineers are rational actors. So what they look for in a leader is this very rational leader. And so to me, I think you can be an engineering leader that almost never does any code. And I agree that as a designer leader, you should not necessarily be in design files doing design work. But but to state it, I think the challenge I've observed is, is kind of this. How do you have the ability to have rapport with your team, have your team? 
team respect the decisions that you make when a lot of your decisions as a design leader directly impact the work itself? Or, you know, you're you're literally saying we're going to do this, we're not going to do this. And then at the same point in time, you have to do a very different job, which has nothing to do with design, which is how do you interact cross-functionally and make sure that you have great relationships with all of the other units within a company so that, again, I think you, you create the environment, you know, kind of this 360 degree environment where design can succeed because design serving the entire company and you have this connective tissue. And I think that's the challenge I've observed. And so I agree with everything you've said, but to me, it's, I don't know, it's a very challenging piece to get around. It's <laughs> what I've seen. It is. And, and, you know, ironically, that's why I end up kind of being able to kind of have a coaching practice because um, these are the challenges that a lot of people come to me with. So it's not easy. So I think there's two things. I think first off, there's a lot that designers can learn from engineering management. Because engineering managers have often gone on a similar path. You know, they've gone from being practitioners to leaders of teams. They're still doing some architecture stuff to being managers of managers. Because engineering has scaled much faster and much bigger than design and usually four, five, six years ahead of us, our engineering partners have probably solved most of the problems that that we're struggling with now. They probably are doing good one-to-ones. They probably have good performance um, uh, processes. They've got a good onboarding flow. They've um, they've got uh, a career ladder. They've got all the stuff that, that 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 we are like. Oh, there's a problem. What do I need to do? So, being really good friends with your engineering partners, I think, would be really helpful. Also, because engineers tend to outnumber designers like you know five or ten to one, or more. You know, as I was talking to somebody, one of my coaching clients recently, they've got a, a design team of twenty five and an engineering team engineering team of nine hundred. You know, there's a slight mismatch of power there um but the mismatch of power is also 100 to 1 i don't even know what that yeah, mismatch it's, is it's bonkers um, <laughs> it's very high um you know leah buley did some research exodactive path and she did some research and it looks like to really genuinely consider yourself design uh sort of not design centric but but being able to deliver good design your ratio is usually five to one to ten to one or you know one designer for every five to ten engineers so yeah outside of that it becomes really difficult the difference is um Engineering partners often have more power in the organization. Engineering usually sits at the board. Design generally doesn't sit at the board. If you are going to be an engineering leader, if you're going to be a CTO at a tech company, you might own 4% of the business. You might own 50% of the business if you're a co-founder. Very rarely do designers get to see the financial benefits of that effort. Um, And and so often they don't have that trade-off. Like it's easy if you're moving from being an engineer to a CTO and like, hey, look, I'm going to give up engineering because it's a pain in the ass anyway. I'm going to take 4% of a billion dollar company. That's an easy trade-off. If what you're giving up as a designer is giving up the thing you love, but you're trading it off a world of pain and no power, um, that becomes a harder trade-off. But also what happens is there's there's a really, really tough mental switch that happens when designers become leaders that I think most designers really, really fail to get over. And this is a real problem. And this is, again, what I try and help a lot of my coaching clients realize is you become a design leader because, as I said, you get frustrated with all the stuff you've had to deal with over the years. And you think, if I get a bit of power, I will be able to fix it. And so your first, second, third design leadership job, what your mentality is, hello, design fam. Tell me everything that's broken. Load me up with all of your problems. And I, like a white knight, will go and I will fight the executive team and I will transform the organization. 
And so your, your design design is fill you up with all these things. We need researchers. We need content strategists. We need UX writers. We need this. We need that. And you go off confidently to battle and you can't get any of those things. And so you come back crestfallen and then your team go, well, this is a terrible design leader because they're not doing their job. The design leader is meant to give me all the things I wish for. I want a pony. Go and get me a pony. Oh, you can't afford a pony. You're really unfair. Mum and dad, I hate you forever. Um, so channeling something else there for a second. So a lot of designers kind of stop at that kind of belief that their job is to satisfy the whims and the needs of the design team and go to battle with the executive. The switch happens usually at the next level up. You know, if you're a head of design, that's where your head, head is. If you become a director of design or a VP of design, you suddenly realize that actually my job isn't to service the needs of my team. I still need to do that. But my job is to service the needs of my business. I am a partner in this business. My first team is the executive team. Like my first team is my head of product, is my head of marketing, is my, my CTO. These are my partners. These are the teams I'm meant to be serving. And my job is to understand what the business outcomes of the, of the company are. And I'm to deliver those outcomes through the design process, through my design team. And once you realize that, once you realize that at a higher level, a design leader is about delivering business value through design rather than placating the design team, that has a fundamental change in your approach. You still, if you have a big design team, need those kind of more pastoral care people, need those, those design leaders, those leads, those heads, those directors that can focus on the day-to-day -day stuff, that can focus on the people stuff, that can focus on the delivery stuff. But when you become a real business leader, that, you know, you are an entrepreneur, you're an executive. And so making that switch is really, really tough. A lot of designers want to get the seat at the table, but they often think it's their right. Um, and they often struggle to be able to demonstrate why they should do that. And, and their, their reason for getting that power is not because they want to utilize their design skills to deliver value for the business. It's because they think that once they've got that seat at the table, once they've got the power, they can get all, they can create this Nirvana world where everything is perfect for designers. And that's just the wrong, sadly, it's the wrong way of looking at it. I'd love if that was the, the, the would work, but it just, it just doesn't work. And so I think a lot of designers get kind of stuck misunderstanding what leadership at the highest level means which is why we only have a few chief design officers in the world, you know, like, uh, you know, a few dozen in the US. But when you talk to those people, that's their attitude. We're the first team, we're delivering value, but we're delivering value through design. I mean, I love what you said there. And I want to try to tie this together with some of your your coaching work. And, you know, I guess bring up one other thing, which is in, in my experience working on design teams, leading design teams, you know, I think something I've taken away from that experience is that what designers need kind of more than anything is to focus on soft skills and really develop soft skills. And that, you know, I think that I've worked with and, you know, some of the most talented designers in the world. And yet what I've seen is, I think, you know, is just going back to, I guess, this note of kind of over the last 15, 20 years, we've seen this transition where it moved from being a grassroots movement and to now it's much more commercial for better and for worse. Um, you know, design is more power. Design teams are generally larger. Design's more valued. And yet part of that problem is just how do you navigate that? How do you make sense of it? And one of the, I guess one of the like, observations that I've made, which I still haven't been able to really disprove, is that I think what most designers really need to lead into is just 
developing the softer skills of, you know, to your point, I think what I've seen is like to be effective at those highest levels has nothing to do with design. You need to have still have the design fundamentals. You need to understand how design works. You need to know what, uh, you know, uh, how designers can work with engineers and product managers to make a great product. But you also then need very, very, very different skills, which is much more around persuasion, much more around connecting with other people. And I don't know. So, so I guess I would just love your thoughts on one. Do you agree with that or your thoughts around kind of focusing on technical skills versus focusing on, you know, kind of softer skills, um, emotional intelligence, being able to persuade and then talk a little bit about how you work with some of your clients on both of those things and what that work looks like? Yeah, it's an interesting one. I mean, I think I don't think it's necessarily unique to design. But I think what happens when anybody moves from being a craftsperson to a manager is they're really good at doing one thing. And so your boss comes on and says, you're really good at doing this one thing. We're now going to give you a completely different job that has very little bearing on what you did before. And we expect you to be really great at it and knocking out the park. Like if you are a great designer, it doesn't mean you will be a great manager. And if you're a great manager, it doesn't mean that you'll be a great designer. But we find ourselves in a situation where you're making that leap. Like, hey, you're, you're the best designer on the team. We're going to turn you into a manager. Often that's a terrible idea. Often, you know, if that person wants to be a manager, that's great. But if they don't want to be, they often kind of take on this role slightly begrudgingly and often end up feeling like they have to give this thing away that they love, which is the thing you talked about before. But most people who are new managers get dropped in it. They have no training. They often their only knowledge of management is kind of like what they've experienced personally. And most of them probably have experienced lots of bad managers rather than good managers. So there's no modeling good behavior. And so it's really easy to understand why bad managers beget more bad managers and so on. And so what you tend to find is you do tend to find a generational change whereby like each generation of manager gets slightly better than the last. And so maybe after 10 or 15 years of a company, you've got mature design practices, but it's really, really tough. You know, Again, you know, if you think about it, like if you're the best brain surgeon in the hospital in New York, do you want to turn that person into someone that is managing doctors and staff and procurement and all that kind of stuff? No, you want them, you know, slicing open brains and, and, and queuing people. Um, so I don't think why we should imagine that because you're a great designer, you should suddenly become an amazing manager. So, yeah, it's I don't think it really answers your question, but I think it's it kind of gets to the nub of like why this problem exists. I would be. I would like to see more businesses. I mean, I would say this because it's self-serving, but I want to see more businesses get get coaching for those leaders. Like, if you're putting this person into a role for the first time and they've not got any training or support, they're going to fail. They're going to flounder. Like the majority of people that come to me on the coaching side of things are actually like you know fifty percent of them. It's their second design role, design leadership role, and their first one was such an absolute disaster that they've been burnt. And they're now going to their new role going, oh, well, I don't want it to be as terrible as it was before. I need to get some support. So providing some support, sending them to conferences, sending them to events, sending them to training, like this stuff is really important if we're not going to um, break people. The other thing that I see, which is, is, is really common, is your first leadership opportunity is usually as a small company, as a player coach. As I said before, player coach is the worst role because you end up doing two things really badly. Often what you need to do is you need to go in that bigger company that have got the groundwork. Like if you go and work in a Google or a Facebook or an Airbnb that has 500 designers, then you're probably going to be working under an amazing manager that has an amazing manager that has an amazing manager. You're probably going to be on an already existing one-to-one -one schedule with an existing kind of process, onboarding, flow, 
rituals, reports, all that kind of stuff. So you can go into a company that has a mature design leadership practice and you will learn from that. And once you've learned from that, then if you go and you run your own team, you've got this sort of foundational material that you can draw upon. If you've never been a design leader before in a company that's never had a design leader before that doesn't value design, like that's that's a triple threat, really. That's like the, the worst of all worlds, I'd say. I'd love to, you know, close out uh, with just a couple of closing questions and, and ask your advice for designers. And, and one of the questions I wanted to ask was what advice you would give to young designers. And so I'm thinking about myself early on, you know, when I was kind of stumbled across design building websites, discovered that this was something that I loved. And I had no idea what to do with that skill set or how to think about design or how to think about a career in design. And so, you know, for people that, you know, they could be in school, could be freelancing at the very start of their careers. Any advice for how they should approach a career in design and, and just why design matters, why that's something worth pursuing? I mean, we've talked a lot about, you know, over the course of the, the conversation, a lot about kind of clear left, a lot about kind of design leadership and design coaching. The other string to my bow is that I work in the VC space. I'm a venture partner at CCAMP, which is a, a fairly well known um, early stage kind of seed investment company in the fund in the UK. We're kind of like Europe's kind of sort of uh, seed fund. Um, and the reason I moved into the venture space is because I want to see early stage founders taking advantage of design as early as possible, because I think it helps them get to product market fit quicker. I think that means that you're being a lot more capital efficient, which from an investor's point of view, you want to be like, if it takes them three years to get to product market fit, that's not good. So from an investor's point of view, if I can get them to product market fit in a year, 18 months, brilliant. Who do I believe delivers product market fit? I believe that designers have a massive role to play in product market fit. I mentioned this before, like I think designers have ability to, to, you know, through their research skills, to talk to customers, to understand what their needs are, to evaluate the competition and figure out what's working, what's not working. I believe they are really great at prototyping products. So rather than building a thing to find that it doesn't work and you've wasted lots of engineering cycles, you can prototype using your mind, using Figma, using Sketch, using whatever, and solve those problems so you're launching in a short amount of time a much better quality product and you can iterate and you can prototype and you can test. And so all of these things reduce the learning cycles, get better products out quicker. So my advice to younger designers is I think startups and agencies are a really good place to learn. I think agencies are a really good place to learn because it's, as I said before, it's this coral reef. You kind of, you go in, you work on a zero to one project for three months, you work on another one, you work on another one. I think if you work in an agency in three years time, you're having the same level of experience. If you went to a big in-house company, you might get in 10 or 15 years, if at all. I think agencies, are, sorry, startups are great because what happens is you go in from day one, you are having conversations with the founder, you're having conversations with the CTO, you are directly impacting the direction of travel. As that works, as the value you start putting in, start seeing uh, returns, you get to hire that second designer, you get to hire that third designer, you get to hire that fourth designer. Very quickly, in maybe the space of 18 months, you've gone from being a really, really good designer to being a design leader. That company then ran Series A, you now asked to hire 10 more designers. And now Series B, you asked to hire 15 more designers. You can accelerate your career, have a massive impact, really, really foreground the value of design and if the company does well 
capture some of that value through the equity that you've um, you've gained in trade of some of your sweat equity. So I think being I think following that kind of founding designer track can be really good. A lot of designers that I meet have been put off working in startups because I think 10 years ago, the startup culture was we work you hard. We work you six days a week, you know, 12 hours a day. We'll burn you out. We'll pay you poorly and you eat ramen all the time. Um, I think that culture's changed. I think now when I see people being hired at startups, they've been paid a reasonable wage. Work-life balance is really respected because talent is really important. And so I think the culture is a lot better. That doesn't mean you don't get your occasional kind of like psychopathic founder. It doesn't mean that, you know, it's not a sitting, you know, with your feet up, twiddling your thumbs kind of job. You will have to make decisions, but you will get to see the impact of the decisions really quickly where you might not do that if you're designing a big icon or you're designing the drop down one of 50 people on, on the Google kind of homepage. So I think the impact you can have, and I think if you go and work at two or three startups over the course of six, seven years, like you you can accelerate your career, you can have a huge impact. And I think it's really, really beneficial. So yeah, agency or um, startup world, I think is, is good. The reason I think a lot of people go to agency rather than startup is that if you join an agency, you are probably the worst designer in the team. And if there's 20 or 30 other designers, you get to learn a lot. The challenge with going with a startup as designer number one is you've got no one to learn from. So it's a, it's a trial by fire. You're learning not because you've got this sage, old, 20-year-old design Yoda kind of teaching you how to do this stuff. It's because you're putting stuff out in the public, which is scary, and it's not working, and you're learning and you're fixing. So a lot of those designers want to go into bigger teams because they want to have that learning experience, and I don't blame them. But I think you, if you are a self-starter, if you are someone that is happy to learn through doing, there is a lot of opportunity in the startup space at the moment for design. Yeah. I mean, huge plus one to both of those. I, I think, you know, the way I would classify those is I think if you're early on in your design career, you really want to try to just have the steepest growth curve. You want to be either in your, to your point with an agency, that growth curve is you're going to get given very different problems every three to six months, but you're also going to learn from a lot of people that are much, much more talented and experienced than you are, you know, at this kind of stage in your career. And then yeah, to your point, I think with, with, uh, you know, being a startup can often be very lonely. Uh, and so I would just encourage anyone that's going into a startup, make sure you have a couple of friends, even just people that work at different companies that you can share and bounce ideas off of. Because I think just the the overwhelming experience, if you're part of one or two designers within a company is just loneliness. You don't have any of that collaboration, anyone to bounce ideas off of. And some of this is around the momentum of the company as well. I think, you know, if you're in a company, a startup that's stalling, and you don't have the resources to hire the second designer, the third designer, the fourth designer, then you're going to be spinning your wheels a little bit. You're still going to be doing the great design work, but you might not be getting the other learning. Whereas if you if you are in a company that's growing, it allows you to hire that researcher. It allows you to hire that UX writer. It allows you to hire that brand designer. Suddenly, very quickly, after 18 months, you could be surrounded by three, four, five people who have all got a, a wide variety of skills and that you can learn from. So I think there is an element of like, you know, in the same way as like, you know, as an investor, what I'm looking for is momentum. I'm looking for the momentum that a company is able to be heading in a certain direction. I think as a as an employee, you are investing your time and you also are looking for momentum, both your own momentum and the momentum of the company that you're in that will take you to where you want to go. And, you know, if you are finding that your investment is flagging, you're not going to re-up. You're not going to use your parata. You're going to jump into another opportunity. So I think, um, I think, yeah, we need to, we need to be treating these 
things a little bit more like an investment and making sure that the the momentum is working in your favor. Yeah, well said. I, I want to ask a question now. I want to ask a similar question, but more focused on design leaders. And, and really here I'm thinking about, you know, your kind of bread and butter clients that you're working with. And to kind of frame it up, we, we just talked about, you know, young designers. And obviously in that answer, you talked about being at a place that you can learn very quickly and, you know, move up the ranks or, or have a leadership role in the team as the team starts to grow. We also talked previously, and I thought your points around what it what it means to be a VP of design are fantastic. It's a very, very, very different role. You're serving the business. And the executive team is your first team, and then the design team is your second team. So now I just want to switch to talking about people that are kind of in this kind of middle ground where they're either aspiring to be a design leader for some of the reasons you've mentioned, or they are a design leader today. And maybe we, you know, talk specifically about that second group, because again, you you coach many, many of these people. How do you encourage them to approach their role, and how should they think about what leadership and leading a design team means? And I know some of this might be reiterating what we've talked about before, but just advice for design leaders. I've got a talk at the moment, which I've been really enjoying, which I've been calling a design's midlife crisis. And a lot of it is around, I think, as designers, we have been taught to expect a world the certain way. We've been taught that we need to follow the double diamond process and we need to do as much research as we do delivery. We've been taught that the double diamond process encourages us to kind of like go broad and, and explore a whole bunch of different ideas before we we double down and, and, and then pick one. We've been taught about the power of design and the importance of research and, and all of this kind of stuff. And so we've held this to be true. But then time and time again, when we go into the workplace, we find that this is not how industry generally works. And so we fight against it and we push back. And I still think we need to be doing that because I think we need to iterate, we need to improve. But I think a lot of designers find when their beliefs come into contact with the reality of a commercial situation, they just get knocked down and knocked down and, and you know, kind of to the point that they leave and come from a new company and then they go through the cycle again and again and again and again. So I do think there's a level of pragmatism. I do think there is a need to realize that what we've been taught about design maybe theoretically is right, is not how it generally works in most organizations. And actually, we need to be happy delivering that project that is 80% better than, than what it was before, but isn't 100%. We need to be comfortable that, that actually design isn't the center of anything, that we are a supporting player, that we actually you know need to understand that, that even though we think we're user-centered, the sales team and the product team and the CEO probably speaks to customers a lot more than we do. And actually, even if they're not doing like the good, like, you know, kind of HCI based research, they probably have a pretty good understanding of, of what needs to be done and that we shouldn't be constantly throwing our toys out the pram when we're asked to do something and, and, um, and, and we haven't validated it. So I think we're sometimes we're our, our own worst enemy. And so what we ultimately need to do, I think we need to be more team players. I think we need to be more pragmatic in the battles we decide to fight and the battles we don't. I think we need to be demonstrating how we add value, not by giving the PowerPoint deck and giving the kind of the, the sermon from the mount, but by actually rolling up our hands and getting in there. One of the groups I think have done this the best are the growth design community. So there's a whole group of designers who are working not so much on kind of improving product features and functionality, but are focused on what we can do to the product and also to our onboarding and our um, 
email kind of retention sort of stuff to slowly be improving things. And so they'll run little, you know, week-long sprints. They'll 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 be really analytical. They'll be able to do front-end code. And they'll be constantly tweaking things, tweaking this label, tweaking this button, tweaking this um, onboarding flow. And very, very quickly, those design growth designers are able to demonstrate, hey, look, you know, over the course, you know, by making every day, making 1% change, the benefits of compound kind of interest means that like at the end of the year, I, I can't remember what the figures are, but like it's got, you know, a thousand percent, 10,000 percent more because you're making the constant improvements. So rather than fighting it, we need to demonstrate. And I think growth design and the role that growth can have or design can have in kind of growth, because at the end of the day, this is what startups are. Startups are mechanisms for growth. You know, they're commercial mechanisms. They are also, we need to do it in a good way. So which is why I think growth designers are great. Like I was never a big fan of the old growth hacker movement because it tended to be a little bit kind of manipulative and dark patterny. So I would rather see designers being, adopting an ethical standpoint to growth than than, than marketers and, and, and growth hackers that might be kind of, playing in the dark pattern space. I think that's a really, really useful place that designers can see, not just shipping product, but helping that product to kind of grow in a meaningful way that the the business notices and goes, wow, there's something interesting going on here. Yeah. Well, I love, you know, just one of the things you touched on there was this idea that, you know, and specifically around growth uh, designers, but I think this applies to design overall is if you can build a team that's just capable of, you know, improving the product and the and the customer experience and what customers get to see day to day by 1% every single day, even if you aren't shipping stuff that's perfect, even if you aren't shipping big revolutionary changes that you want to throw into your portfolio, you're doing a massive amount of good for the company that you're working at. And, you know, I think one of the things that I've often tried to just encourage designers to think more about, because I think it's, in my experience, it's relatively missing, is this idea that if you want design to succeed within the company, you have to care about the business and you have to care about the company. And actually, the only way that design design succeeds, the only way you get a team that's two times the size where you can go and hire some of these people that you want is if you first help the company succeed. And if you help the company succeed, then, you know, you can succeed as a design team. This has been so much fun, Andy. It's been so much fun to have you on and go all over the map. Thank you so much for the time. And thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. It's been my pleasure. Thank you so much.